I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Welcome to the Made in China podcast. If you just heard the the beginning, that's the new theme music. You know, you want to get made, you want to be made in China, be a made man. And it's Rico speaking. Mike is in the other room being lazy. We're still going to have a, an amazing guest today. We've got Luke Francis from Marvel Watches. He had a Indiegogo campaign that was funded was 411%. It was, it was insane, uh, about just over $85,000. And it, again, it's Marvel Watches. Luke, this is like take, what, take two? Yeah. <laughs> take two of our interview. Hopefully this uh, gets recorded this time. <laughs> We've got, you know, I'm recording it in Audacity on my end. I've set it up. You've got Skype call recorder on your end. Yeah, we uh, got some redundancies. Uh, I'm, re- I'm recording with my iPhone, holding it against the, the, the speakers. Um, <laughs> you know. But um, so today I wanted to actually talk to Luke about post-campaign, mostly post-campaign, maybe a little bit of a review of the campaign because I've actually sat down and interviewed you before with regards to the beginning and and everything that you did so I won't go too deeply into that I think it's more interesting for me now that you've been successfully funded in terms of what's your journey now where are you going building an actual business the manufacturing mm-hmm. process the manufacturing process you know of course my company source for Asia that's that's what we do so for me it's just interesting to follow that story mm-hmm. of course a lot of people probably maybe don't know you or don't know much about your campaign so can we just do a little quick overview yeah so about well first of all thank you for interviewing me so privilege to be one of the first on sourcefind asia yeah you're the first batch man first batch first, yeah first batch this is history in the making i've always wanted to be the first batch of something <laughs> all right but uh yeah so about uh, four months ago in uh, July, we launched a campaign for Morveau Watch, which uh, was a or is a reclaimed airplane aluminum watch. So we just take aluminum from old airplanes and put it in a watch, basically. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun designing it and uh, putting it up on Indiegogo and, and you know, Seth Godin has this thing about like creating your art and then saying to the world, like, here it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I made this. Now, how are you going to respond to this? And it's like one of the most terrifying things, but it was so cool to see how the supporters on Indiegogo and, and just the crowdfunding world just embraced it and uh, wanted to see more of it and to the tune of 411%. So now I'm just in the process of getting it manufactured and uh about to push out the orders come mid-november here so i think previously you talked about your inspirations but maybe you could uh i think it's interesting what made you what made you actually come up with the idea for the watch yeah so the inspiration for the design came from (laughs) it's actually pretty interesting i was sitting around in my 
kind of day job situation and thinking I don't want to be in the nine to five life anymore. And I remember I would go in the evenings and on the weekends to Starbucks and I'm sitting there thinking about what I want to do. And I was realizing that crowdfunding was a, a legitimate, you know, business model to get started with something, but I, have, I had no ideas. You know, I was researching markets and seeing what would be the most, you know, what would gain the most traction. And uh, I was seeing on crowdfunding that watches were doing really well. I mean, if you look at Kickstarter, there's a watch for, you know, every other campaign is a watch campaign. Um, Indiegogo is catching up to that, but it's a little bit less. Um, and so I said, well, you know, if, if all these watch campaigns can be successful, surely I can create something that's successful as well. And at the time, I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll make a watch. But I, first of all, I don't know how to make a watch. And second of all, I have no ideas for what, a watch, what watch I would actually make. And uh, I remember sitting there looking at my MacBook Pro as I was working and thinking, what if I just took this design and put it in a watch? Mm-hmm. And I started looking up aluminum watches, and I realized like nobody was using aluminum to make a watch for good reasons. I mean, there was a lot of design challenges around using aluminum. Um, and then I kind of upped the ante and said, okay, what kind of crazy, cool aluminum can I put in the watch to make it even more awesome? And that's where the reclaimed airplane aluminum came from. So, yeah, that's kind of the inspiration behind it. You know, no background in it. Luckily, I had a, a guy who was able to take the, the workings of my brain and turn it into a pretty awesome design that I'm super proud of. That's- Apparently, everybody else liked too. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the 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 guy you're talking about is Daniel, right? The designer. Yeah, Daniel Daniel G. Daniel G. Off of the up. original G. <laughs> shout out! Shout out to Daniel. <laughs> yeah, he's on Upwork. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah check I, him out. I mean, I've used Daniel now various times. In fact, I'm about to send another customer um, Daniel's contact information to to design some bags. So, mm. um, like. He's he's. I'm pretty impressed with the guy, and I keep on going back to him. So, it's it's so funny to think that like, um, you know, Tim asked who I use. Tim from uh, Inner China, which is another community we're involved in. He yeah. asked who who I use to do the watch design. And I I shared with him Daniel, and then somebody on the community asked who Tim used, and he shared with them Daniel. And now like our community just keeps using Daniel. For all these design projects, I mean, he's he's got the chops though. So he's you should just become an honorary member of Inter-China. I know, right? <laughs> just, just add him to the to the WeChat group. Just like yo, Daniel, like we need you to. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I like up the prices though. We can't give up. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've got these socks, man. You need to design these socks for me, man. I need them done by tomorrow. <laughs> Can you give us maybe a quick overview of your your campaign leading up to? I think that when I left you, the last time I spoke to you, you had just reached, I think, maybe 200% funded. So just kind of a quick overview up to that up to that stage when we last spoke. Yeah, so basically in order to get to that point where, uh, you know, I was 200% funded and, and, you know, now 400% funded, uh, it all started with friends and family and just making sure that um, – they had buy-in to what I was what I was making, and the way that I did that was I created a couple design surveys, and I asked them to tell me, okay, what do you think about this design, and if you could change something, what would you change? And um, they, you know, I got 
I don't know, I probably got about 250 responses to that. And at the end of the survey, I asked, you know, please insert your email to <laughs> certify this. I don't know, I just made something up just to capture their email, you know. <laughs> and uh, So after they had submitted that, I had all these emails, and I had what they thought would be a great addition to the watch. And so I took what they said to heart, and I ended up hearing that the thing that most people wanted was different color hands on the watch. And so I sent a second survey. I said, okay, you guys wanted different color hands. Well, what color hands do you want, though? And so, you know, probably half of the original group ended up responding to that. And, oh, and by the way, the, the way that I got all these people that I was reaching out to was I literally contacted 500 people and had individual conversations on Facebook with all of them and asked them to fill out my survey. Um, and so by the time that they had filled out two surveys, the people that had done that were the most bought in of the entire group. I mean, they felt like they had helped to design to make this thing. Not only do they like me as a person because they're a friend or family, but they like the watch now because they helped to design it. And so, by the time that it watched, those were the, or, or by the time that it launched, those were the most primed up leads, and almost all of them ended up buying. Um, and and just prior to launch, what I ended up doing was um, creating a list and just going down that list. and And the list consisted of every male that I knew and every male on my Facebook group. And I called, emailed, or Facebook messaged over 500 people and asked them one question: Are you going to buy a watch? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know that's the most terrifying thing to do because you know you 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 know you want to do everything possible to not have to ask that but still get people to buy a watch. Um, but I I needed to know because I needed to gear up a bunch of people to buy within the first hour and the first day for momentum's sake um, to kind of rig the numbers, if you will. And so um, I ended up getting about 67 people that said yes to the first hour, about 150 that said yes to the first day. And so on day one, I clicked go, and I had about 15 people fighting for the number one watch because they were all individually numbered. Um, and then... Uh, you know, those 67 people, they ended up buying in the first hour, 150 in the first day. And then what that ended up doing was putting me on new and noteworthy on Indiegogo. And I was getting all these features on the homepage. And, um, and so the first four days, I was consistently on the homepage. And then after that, I got featured on the Indiegogo newsletter, which ends up going out to a million people. And that turned into uh, $30,000 in one day. And I remember waking up that morning, and I knew it was coming. And I asked him, I said, you know, how many people can I expect? Because I'm not, not really sure how well this is going to do for me. He's like, you, you might want to expect at least 200 new backers. And I was like, yeah, fat chance. I don't know if that's actually <laughs> And uh, I remember waking He's just talking. Yeah. I woke up that morning. Uh, a little late because I may or may not have missed my alarm. But um, <laughs> I woke up that morning to $10,000 and I was getting a new backer every minute and the whole day. And I was just like, what is going on? This is awesome. And uh, yeah, so that trickle effect ended up just leading me the rest of the campaign. And, you know, it got spread around the internet on different different sites and on social media and everything. And that really helped out too. So 
that I would say the the momentum wave up front is what really led to the overall success of the campaign. Um, so it's then, essentially, your campaign strategy was old school: going kissing babies, shaking hands, kissing. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, asking people, "Are you going to vote for me? Hey, are you voting?" <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> I actually had somebody ask, like, "Oh, you say uh, you're about to run a campaign? Are you? What does that mean? Are you running for office?" It's like, no, 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 it's a crowdfunding campaign. Let me explain. I've got <laughs> America, I've got your vote, right? Yeah, I love your vote. Uh, yeah, one of the things you just said was the, the main thing was building up the momentum before the campaign started. That was a huge part of the reason why your campaign was successful. So would you say, you know, the Pareto principle, the 20% of what you did that gave you 80% of your results, was that? Was, or was it, I guess it was a combination of, of talking to individuals, like making sure that you had those personal conversations with 500 people. Yeah, it certainly wasn't my stunning marketing and beautiful pictures <laughs> because I had pictures that were taken on my iPhone 5S and uh, yeah. Uh, I hired a photographer that we ended up using. It didn't have a light box, so we ended up using a old trash can that was semi-translucent <laughs> as a light box. So, yeah, it wasn't because of the great pictures or the great marketing. It was it was entirely, I think, because of you know spending that face time with everybody. You know, I'm based in Shenzhen right now, and. I ended up going back to my hometown, Charlotte, North Carolina, just so that I could meet with all those people and show that I mean business and I'm actually making a watch, show them the watch, put it on their wrist. You know, there's a, there's a theory with piano salesmen that if you can get the piano in their house, they won't return it. Mm -hmm. And so they say, yeah, you can try the piano for a week free, right? <laughs> and so I, I applied that principle the same. Uh, to this watch sales, and I said, "Here, put it on your wrist. See how it feels. See how nice and light it is, but not too light. Doesn't feel cheap." And uh, you know, I was playing around with the bands. I say, "Hey, try on all the bands. See which one you, feels best for you." You know, yeah. <laughs> and so you know, I was really working it prior to the actual campaign going live. And you know, I, I that's not sustainable. It's not scalable. Um, but those people ended up being my biggest social advocates as well which led to even more sales. So I would definitely say it's worth it. And, you know, an interesting thing is as well, like when I left off with you, you and you just mentioned you didn't do a ton of, of, of marketing. And that time period, I remember you were saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to try and push to get onto some publications right now. And a, from our last conversation, the, the, the lost interview, you didn't actually get onto any major publications or any major websites, right, besides the newsletter. Yeah, you know, it, it turns out that uh, not even my local newspaper wanted to hear my success story. I ended up, <laughs> ended up being the, the uh, number one crowdfunded campaign between Kickstarter and Indiegogo in Charlotte, North Carolina, and still the Charlotte Observer didn't want to hear about it. <laughs> we don't care. We don't they care. don't care. Have you seen that cat? You know, it was, it was playing yeah. piano. I know, right? <laughs> oh, come on, guys. This is news. So maybe PR is not my strong suit. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting thing, though, because I think a lot of people assume that they need to be on major publications to get the kind of uh, backing and the kind of 
you know, uh, hype. Yeah, and I, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I do think it's definitely beneficial. You know, when you're playing in this space of uh, men's fashion, you know, these men's fashion blogs, they exist to get advertising dollars. And so, you know, they're like, yeah, we'll feature your watch if you give us money. How much money are you going to give us? And so at that point, I was bootstrapping it. I didn't have any money. Um, so honestly, I took a different approach when I saw that I wasn't giving any return on my time investment and just focused entirely on the people that were already buying and asking them who they knew and how they could share and really just gamifying the way that people were sharing the campaign. So. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, is that you have to realize that a lot of these publications, they're requesting money. When you mm-hmm. reach out to them and you say, hey, I've got this campaign, they, they, they will say, how much are you going to pay me? And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, it's just nice to see somebody else get a successful campaign and then to be able to say, hey, I did it in a more organic way, especially in this day and age. I feel like the more campaigns are successful, the more it becomes a business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, one thing I was going to ask is what are some things that people don't realize they have to do once they're successfully funded or even post campaign what do you think is something that you did and realize that you're going to have to do so that's a tough question mm. uh, I would say the biggest kind of surprise to me was was that post-campaign collection of information and you know you've got i mean i had 600 backers so (laughs) everybody has got their opinions and and thoughts that they want to get in and they they want special preferences like they want the watch tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) and so you know you're getting all this influx of information and and uh, i don't i didn't have a system to manage that when i um when i went into it and so after the campaign, I'm getting all this information, and I, you know, honestly, it was cumbersome, and I ended up losing some things that people would say, and emailing the same people twice about the same thing, and some people were getting frustrated, but you know, luckily they all understood, and I ended up explaining. I'm like, look, I'm a one man show trying to figure this out. Sorry, <laughs> and they're like, oh, we totally get it. Don't worry. Like as long as our watch is on time. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, and, and there's some systems out there that are in place to um, help you uh, take backer information after the campaign is over. Backer Kit is the first that comes to mind. Um, I ended up just Backer Kit. Backer Kit. That's interesting. Yeah. So now this is what I was talking about with the business aspect of it. People are, they, there's services that you can use to help you post campaign, during campaign, prior to your yep. campaign. Right. Yep, and uh, they I didn't end up using BackerKit. I ended up just creating my own spreadsheet and uh, hiring uh, my stepsister as a <laughs> as a uh, a worker part time. Cheap, cheap man, cheap man. Cheap labor. Sixteen years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that's funny. We're looking for gas money. <laughs> gas money. Can you drive me to the mall? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of backers, how difficult is it to manage the happiness of, of you know, 600 backers? Uh, you know, it's not that hard. Most of them are not going to 
reach out to you, they're, most of them are not going to complain, but there will be a few that do. And I found that the way to silence the complainers is to just kill them with kindness. Um, and it's the reality. Like, I, I was telling you on the, on the Lost Tapes <laughs> that I love my backers because they made this a reality. Mm-hmm. And without them, I would have never been able to create this business. And so, you know, when someone complains to me, I take it to heart. I take it seriously and I ask, okay, what can I do to improve? What can I do? What did I, what did I, how did I wrong you? And how can I make this right? You know, and they always, you know, a hundred percent of the time, the response that I get is, oh, I think you read my email wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, let me, let me correct my tone here. I didn't, I wasn't angry. I was just kind of questioning, you know, so. You just, you just take that, uh, the humble approach, right? Yeah. The humble approach really wins the day so okay for any potential backers or not potential but for any backers that are listening right now is there anything that you would communicate to them for them to keep in mind as this process is going yeah i i would keep in mind uh that uh you know sometimes you're set on a schedule and everything is going as planned and then somebody throws a curveball into the equation Mm-hmm. And so currently we're on time and I'm happy about that. I'm proud about it. I'm telling, you know, shouting it from the rooftop. But I always say that with a caveat. I say, we're on time, but something could happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know what that is and I hope it doesn't happen. And we put things in place to make sure that it doesn't happen, but something could happen. And uh, so. That's the the kind of biggest fright that I have at this point is that something will come out of the blue that I didn't expect and uh, set back the schedule a little bit. But, you know, I guess that's always to be expected. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of things that could happen, you're talking about curveballs. Sometimes it's it's the factory. And uh, typical situations that happen with people post-campaign is that they've never done any sort of manufacturing before. They don't have any experience, and now they're trying to source a factory or they're trying to communicate with a factory in China. And, you know, there have been some campaigns that have been super successful and then taken a year to deliver the product that they promised, Mm -hmm. Um, mainly because maybe the the, the factory that they were dealing with was inexperienced with with such a large order or they just weren't expecting that and they have other customers and then they push you back, they push you back, they give you inferior product. have you had i mean i already know the answer to this because of the last episodes but have you had any sort of issues with your factory what what was their reaction to your campaign success yeah so my factory was watching the campaign from day one (laughs) and uh, they were very interested in how my campaign was doing i mean because it directly affects them right so they were rooting for me um and as the campaign uh, passed the goal and then doubled it and then tripled and then quadrupled every time they were just like oh my gosh way to go Luke you know like what's that? more money gonna- for us more money for us yeah exactly and they were like calling my order numbers they were like I think you're going to order this much I think you're going to order this much so I was like whoa whoa guys let's hold on here but uh, yeah so they were they were they knew exactly where I was by the end so they knew how many orders roughly to expect uh after the campaign was complete. And so um, 
they are set up to be kind of a supplier for watch campaigns that are uh, crowdfunding. Um, and so they, they, have, they have the experience. They have that experience, exactly. And so I'm very pleased with the interaction that I've had, and uh, I'm very confident that they'll be able to deliver quality product on time. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I think it's a little bit different than the typical interaction that you might have with a factory here in China. Oh, but, it's, um, it's 100% different. I mean, most factories would not even understand what not they will have just never heard of crowdfunding before mm -hmm. you know and a lot of factories think short term instead of long term they want money now they're not willing to give you a ton of samples they're, they're not willing to give you a lower moq so you know a lot of factories will not sort of understand the concept of a, a crowdfunding campaign and betting their success on the success of your campaign right mm -hmm. um so that's actually maybe a, a very important point for people listening is if you are interested in making a, a Kickstarter or Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, maybe try to source a factory that has experience with, with crowdfunding, or at least is familiar with the, with the concept um, so that you can communicate to them that, hey, I might need more samples than you know the usual customer because I need to show people my product. Right, um, I need to get the word out there. I need to send it to bloggers and, and and these kind of people who will talk about the product. So that's that's an interesting thing. I think that's going to be hugely beneficial mm. post campaign when you know they understand that this thing needs to get done properly in time because they've done it before. But the reality is, you know, whether or not your factory has heard of crowdfunding or not, it stands to reason that they will 100% put more effort into the projects where there are people or representatives on the ground um, making sure that that product is being manufactured on time. And so the fact, the, the fact that I live 20 minutes from my factory and I visit them at least once a week, you know, I think is making a huge difference in how they respond to me um, and how they, um, you know, how quickly they're, they're making changes as as they need to be made, you know. Looks in the Chinese factories, like, hey, Mikey, how was the weekend? Yeah. Say, say hi to your mother for me. Yeah, you know, I just make <laughs> friends with the factory and they love me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I would say 100%. If you can't be here, find someone that can be here for you and, uh, and make, you know, just sit on the factory and make sure they're getting done what they need to be done. Are you worried uh, about anything in particular? Like, is there any one thing that, that worries you the most in this process? Um, dealing with the factories. Dealing with the factories. Yeah. I, I think, you know, post-campaign life is a constant worry. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to, you know, I, like I was saying, I just love the backers so much. I want to be able to give them exactly what they ordered and what they deserve. Um, so um, I, that curveball is, I mean, honestly, that's what it is. You know, like if something comes out of the blue that I didn't expect or wasn't prepared for, that's what terrifies me the most. So... But other than that, I feel like my factory is on point and everything is on schedule. It's just something might happen, and I don't, I don't know what that is. But maybe that's just the irrational fear of a new entrepreneur. But 
Hey man, you're in China. This is China. Hashtag this is China. TIC. Something always happens. This, you know, things can happen, man. Like I've, uh, I mean, we talked about it in the last one. I was like, you know, a lot of times uh, if you're in North America dealing with a factory over here, they will just delay you. They'll they'll tell you, hey, you know, we'll get this done by next week, and then you contact them, and then they don't reply for twelve hours because they're twelve hours ahead of you. And then when they reply, they say, oh, you know, we're not finished with this. And, and then next thing you know, it's been two weeks and you still haven't, they still haven't answered the question you asked two weeks ago. Yep. Right. So it's, it's, as Luke said, it's super important for you to be on the ground um, or at least know somebody that's on the ground, you know, wink, wink. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, the pitch for you. Hire yeah. Rico. <laughs> Hire source find Asia. It doesn't have to be me. Just you know, anybody that's working for me. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So so far, are you saying with your factory like this? There hasn't been any sort of any issues, any even a small one that you think is a, a common problem, maybe. Yeah, as far as issues go, uh, just got some box samples in on Monday. Which, by the way, I went to the factory at four hoping to see the box samples, and I get there, and she says, oh, they're 30 minutes away. Uh, just We'll just chill out here and talk about other stuff. And I was like, okay, 30 minutes is fine. Four hours later, the boxes come, <laughs> <laughs> and they are um, the wrong size. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a little frustrating, but that's an easy problem to, to sort out. Um, there, was some, there was some questions around the process for the case body, but we were able to sort those out. Um, and actually, I think uh, a lot of that confusion was around like the translation of certain words like anodized, which is a chemical process that is kind of complex. So uh, to explain that to Chinese and they maybe haven't heard of it the way that we explain it, mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a little bit tough, but we ended up sorting that out through some fancy translators. So Yeah, like in, in Chinese, it probably translates to like a full sentence. You know, yeah, right, exactly. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> well, they kept saying oxidized, and I was like, well, there's a slight difference between oxidize, oxidization and anodization. And so we had this argument for like three hours. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, what was that? I had another question. I forgot. Um, what were we talking about just before this? Worried about anything going wrong. Um, I had a very, very specific question. I got thrown off. You mentioned uh, packaging, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was going to say that as a caveat, for most people, uh, I think a lot of people when they they source uh, a product from China, they don't really realize that packaging is a separate project, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most factories do not produce packaging themselves. They, They will say they'll do the packaging for you, but... You know, if you're sourcing, um, uh, if you're making a toy or if you're making shoes, that factory does not make the packaging for that toy. They they will mm-hmm. source it from another factory. So, uh, what I like to do with our with our business is when a, when a customer approaches us and they want to make a product, um, a lot of times sometimes customers come and they already have a, a relationship with the factory that they, they they've been talking to them for a few months. I always like to say, hey, let's find a separate packaging factory. 
just so that we can have control over that, over the design of that, over the whole process. We know where the packaging is being made. And there's just something to keep in mind. A, a lot of factories are, you know, really good and they'll, they'll make great packaging. And a lot of customers don't even care so much about the packaging. But it's just something to keep in mind for most people. I've noticed um, with my customers that a lot of people don't realize that the factories themselves do not make the packaging. There will be an, another packaging factory. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of you know worrying about delays or anything like that what are the I guess the main step that you're, you're taking to ensure nothing bad happens is just being there right right yeah um, you know I have no plans to leave until all of the watches are shipped delivered and customers are satisfied so that's my biggest hedge against any problems so I'll be doing all the QC myself when when the time comes. Right. And, you know, okay, so let's shift the conversation a little bit. Like, so you're post-campaign, you know, you're, you're now in the pro- process of producing the product. What other steps are you taking? What other steps are you making to form a business, right? Like, because, of course, after you get successfully funded, it doesn't matter how much money it is you now have to create a, an actual company. Yeah, and this is where I'm learning a lot, and uh, this is where the big learning curve comes in for me. Um, you know, the, the, the next steps for me is I just launched my website, and so I transitioned off of Indiegogo and shifted into the online store through Shopify. And with that, uh, I kind of broke it down into four phases of growth. Phase one would be sustaining a, a, a healthy set of monthly traffic. Um, phase two would be then optimizing the conversion rate on that traffic. Um, phase three is brand building. And then phase four is new product introduction. And so I don't get to phase four, which is that new product introduction, until I have a very consistent conversion rate which is giving me steady income mm-hmm. because it's great to run an $85,000 Indiegogo campaign um, and make all this money but if the moment you launch your online store and you know month one month two you're making a few hundred bucks then this is not a sustainable business and so the biggest question I have right now is how do I build traffic how do I continue to drive traffic and then once I have that traffic how do I convert that traffic into raving fans um, that want more watches? So, and one of the steps you're making right now, as as I can see on your website, is that uh, you started a blog, right? Yeah, I do. I have a blog. Um, I hired two blog writers off of Upwork because blog writing is not my forte at all. Um, I think actually that's a really good kind of side note to make here is that if there's something that you're not strong at but would benefit your business, um, there's probably somebody that can do it for you um, and you can probably find them at a good rate. And uh, and it's good to hire out the things that, that aren't your strength so that you can focus on what you're good at. And that benefits the business the most. So, you know, writing is not my strength. And so I hired two people that are good writers and they're writing about kind of men, men's 
topics, fashion topics, kind of tips and tricks, life hacks, that kind of thing. Yeah, just to just to underline that, like for me as well, um, well, I, I'm a pretty good writer, not to pat myself on the back, but <laughs> uh, for me as well, like I just don't have time. You know, I could I could write an article. You know, I could bang out five hundred words in probably two hours, but at that stage, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, so I'll probably spend like six hours editing. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I what I've done now is I've also I hired a guy, and we know him. His name is Maurice. Um, he's part of Enter China. He lives in Shenzhen, where Luke is, and. Mm-hmm. You know me and Maurice, we kick back ideas back and forth, and I throw him ideas. I'll I'll do some research and I'll come up with bullet points and I'll, I'll fill in some information. And then Maurice will write the complete article. So it's it's important to be able to outsource certain things, and I think a lot of people don't realize how accessible um, it is in this day and age, in this internet day and age, to outsource work. You know. So yeah, just underline that point. Super accessible, and uh, if it's accessible, you should definitely use it. Yeah, even continuing from the outsourcing point, your new website, you outsourced your web design, right? Yeah, outsourced the web design uh, 100%. I just said, hey, this is what I want. Can you make it? And uh, went through about 15 different uh, you know, applications on Upwork and then ended up settling on a guy from India named Yogesh and uh, me and Yogesh got friendly for the next four weeks and made a really cool website so uh, do you mind telling me how much you paid Yogesh for the web yeah all in it was $500 for the, the website man you know $500 is it's insane it's insane just to for an entire website you know a lot of people would be paying thousands right yeah yeah and that's you know you, that's the other thing that you get hit up with post campaign all the time is oh i can do your branding for you i can do your marketing i can make your website and the prices are always outrageous mm-hmm. um and upwork workers have just the amount of skill level they just need more direction so i think what you're hiring at the higher price point is someone who can do that kind of design level thinking for themselves on Upwork, what you're hiring is is somebody that you have to provide more direction for, especially at the lower price point. I think you can get anything on Upwork, but if you're if you're looking for the lower price point, you're going to have to give a lot more direction. So, which is you know, which is fair enough. Um, speaking of Upwork and you know all the all the links that we've to all the websites and resources we've talked about on this podcast, we'll have them in the show notes. So if you go back to the website sourcefindasia.com slash made in china we'll have uh, the episodes we'll have all the show notes is anybody else that you outsource work to so you, you outsource work to the bloggers your graphic design and web is anybody else that you yeah uh, for the the basic branding elements like my logo and kind of the whole look of everything that i'm using the text i use and all of that um i hired a, a a girl from Macedonia, actually. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I like to say we're a worldwide company. This <laughs> is international, man. This is international. And actually, a little Easter egg, and I'll share it with you guys here on SourceFind Asia because you're awesome. Um, but I haven't shared this with anybody, and I haven't even put it on my marketing materials online. 
the model number for my watch is US CPM with a lowercase i, and that stands for all of the locations that I hired someone um, to work on the final design of the watch. Oh, so that's, pretty, was, that's pretty nice. That's cool. Yeah, it was United States, Pakistan, Macedonia, and Poland. So, and then the I stands for Indiegogo, which is a limited edition. So the future model numbers won't have that I on it. And just going back to the website really quickly, uh, you know, as a, as as I go to it, Moreau.com, it's it's nice, man. Like it's really sleek. It's very clean. You know, it's definitely up my alley in terms of design. Well, thank you. What uh, what did you communicate to to Yogesh? Yeah, well, so to Yogesh, I just said, hey, listen, I want this cool feature on the front where you got a big watch. So, you know, they log on to the website and they just see a watch, you know, because that's exactly what I sell. And they should be able to know immediately this is what's being offered. And I wanted to design your watch section. So basically, from the very beginning of interacting with the website, you're able to make a purchasing decision. And so, you know, I, I told him exactly how I wanted that. And I actually took a piece of paper, just a blank piece of paper, and drew out, like, where everything would be located and how it would function mm-hmm. on this homepage. And he just basically took that piece of paper that I took a picture of and sent it to him. He turned it into reality. Nice. Um, and then as far as the shop goes, um, this the, the way that the catalog level is laid out, like when you click on the shop tab there, is based off of a um, model that I learned from Ezra Firestone over at Smart Marketer, and it's converting really well for him, which is video heavy and um, you know description heavy as well. And so I just basically ripped him, ripped off what he's doing, and, and told, just showed some of his websites to Yogesh and was like, "Hey, can you make this?" And uh, and that's how we ended up with this design here. Um, So definitely going to test it out. There's still a lot of testing to go. I like to say that this is like the MVP, the minimum viable product for this website because not even sure if it converts well yet and, you know, what what elements are working well. So um, I'll definitely be changing things over time, but this is a starting point. And kind of the principle, the heuristic that I operate on is uh, what Richard Branson said, which is screw it, just do it. So if you have an idea and you need to get something done, just make something. Mm-hmm. Um, stop trying to make it perfect, because I think as entrepreneurs, like we want it to be perfect. And uh, so I said, I need a website, and by no means do I think this website is perfect, but it's functional and it sells watches, and that's exactly what I needed to do. And from there, I can change a lot of things. So, I guess you know we reached the end. We recovered everything, man. Is there anything? <laughs> is there everything any, that ever needed to be talked about? Ever, ever in, in, existing <laughs> in this universe. I think it's also just we could talk for days. We could go oh, yeah, off and off. Sure. But you know, we want to make sure that whoever's listening is getting. And listen, if if your listeners have any questions, they can email me on my personal email, Luke.Francis at Morveau.com. And uh, you can include that in your notes. And, uh, yeah, just shoot me a – I love answering questions. That's one of the biggest highs post-campaign is, like, people send me emails asking, like, how I did it. And I love just talking to people and saying, you know, this is this is what I did. Can I help you out in any way? So definitely email me. You would say you even loved it as much to come onto a podcast. 
so much that I double timed on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll, we'll probably we'll probably have many conversations on this podcast in the future. Absolutely, I'd love to come back. Is there anything that we missed out? Is anything that I didn't cover that you want to mention? Um, I would just say that if uh, if you're planning to make a physical product and you're trying to manufacture out of China or somewhere in Asia, um, be on the ground. And if you can't be on the ground, find someone that can be. So I just wanted to reiterate that. Um, and, you know, Source Find Asia is definitely a quality organization to hire. So just pitching, pitching you guys here a little bit. That's where we have the little like <laughs> ding, you know, the ding. little... <laughs> all right Luke man uh, you're my buddy and I, I, I'm proud of you like I, I really enjoyed the, seeing the success of your campaign having met you before I even knew what you were doing and before you had launched the campaign and just kind of saying you know getting to know you initially and then being oh, okay he's making some watches and then actually seeing the campaign launch and it'd be successful and then following your progress post campaign and us doing these podcasts and, and providing hopefully value for for people out there and man I, I wish you all the best and I think for a lot of people you know Luke is a, he's a smart guy but he's done it he's done things smartly but he's done it the bootstrapping way he didn't spend a ton of money on the campaign so even anybody else listening out there they can do it you can do it yourselves and uh, thanks man uh, thanks for being on the podcast yeah thanks for having me Alright, that's the end Made in China podcast uh, If you want to contact moi You can contact me at Rico at sourcefindasia.com That's email And uh, you can Obviously you can contact us on Facebook Twitter At sourcefindasia At sourcefindasia Instagram, you guessed it At sourcefindasia Thanks, see you next time